0: My name is Christian, part of Love 146, we are an international organization working here in Houston and around the world for the abolition of child trafficking and exploitation, and nothing less. And as you can imagine, we see some really dark stories in that work. In fact, I would say some of the darkest stories on the planet. I remember just before Christmas last year, we got an email from our director of aftercare in in our Manila office. She oversees a girl's home and a boy's home there. And she was letting us know that we had just been referred three new children by the Filipino authorities, one of whom was the youngest we'd ever received into our care. She came in at two years old. And she sent a picture of this girl dressed in a T-shirt and diaper, and she was toddling her way up the front steps towards the front door. And two other girls who were already residents in our care came out to greet her. They each grabbed one of her hands and walked her in. And as they walked, the girl said to her, "'It's okay, you're safe now.'" You'll be loved here. Some really dark stories. I remember the first time I went over uh, in 2009 to see uh, this particular work in the Philippines and was told of a girl who, when she first came to the home, she would isolate herself on the property and sit down in the dirt and get handfuls of soil and just dump it on top of her head, both figuratively and literally trying to bury herself because of the deep pain and trauma she had experienced. But I want you to know that despite the darkness of these stories, there is such great hope. Because I've sat in the front lawn of that same home, and I've seen 18 girls, all of whom come from a background of exploitation, dance together in worship. To see God move children from severe exploitation to sincere worship gives me great hope. And I hope that it does you as well. But we have to ask the question, the pragmatic question, how do we stop this? How do we end these stories to make sure that we don't have any more of these stories to tell in the future? Or the more principled question, if I'm a follower of Jesus, what must I do to respond to the gospel in light of human trafficking? And I think the answer to those questions is the same. So let's turn to the scriptures to see what God says about this. Uh, If you have your Bible open to Philippians 2, if you don't it will be on the screen. Philippians chapter 2 starting in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Philippi, and he begins, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Listen, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thanks be to God. As I've reflected on this passage, I've come away with, with a truth that's just been knocking around in my mind over and over, and, and here it is. God's gracious healing to the world comes through the costly compassion of his people in the world. God's gracious healing to the world comes through the costly compassion of his people in the world. So if we're going to actually impact human trafficking, if you want to ask the question with me, how do we stop this and other similar evils, most of us are going to have to make some changes in our lives. We're going to have to make some moves in our lives because obviously what we're doing is not working, right? Um, And I think this passage calls us to those movements. And so the first one, I think, is to move from pity to compassion. From pity to compassion. Look at verse 1 with me. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion... That word compassion is interesting. We think of it as merely a synonym for sympathy or maybe pity. And, and really, I mean, it is. It is kind of a, a synonym for that. But the word is richer than that. It's deeper than that. The Latin actually means co-suffering. The picture is of gut-wrenching, bow twisting That's the response of compassion. Now, I think that most of us, if, if you're like me, when you hear a hard story like this, right, a two-year-old girl brought into this home, we have a visceral reaction. We're angry. I heard your groans. I know you're angry, but most of us stop at pity. And and the reason I know that is because if it wasn't a story about someone's daughter, but about your daughter, if it wasn't a story about a two-year-old, but my two-year-old, my response would be stronger than that, wouldn't it? I mean, it would be utterly gut-wrenching. I would be so doubled over by that reality that it would leave me no option but to do whatever I had to do to address it. But we usually stop at pity. That's how we're wired. Pity usually produces a spasm of sadness, followed by paralysis, because what are we supposed to do about that, right? It's too big. It's too overwhelming. It's too dark. And then eventually leads to forgetfulness because lunch is coming and we're going to go eat and then we're going to have to go mow the yard and our our lives are going to move on and we forget. But compassion, the kind of compassion that's born from an encounter where the resurrected Jesus leads to action. And we see this in Luke 7. Luke 7. The gospel writer Luke tells a story about Jesus who encounters a widowed woman. Her husband has died. She has one son and the son has died and she is floored with grief. And Jesus comes upon her and it says he has compassion. He doesn't just have pity. He wasn't just deeply sad and then didn't know what to do and moved on. He had compassion. He raised the boy from the dead. Compassion leads to action. I don't know if you... I saw this in the news a couple years ago, but in New Jersey, there were a couple women who worked together, and they got into a workplace argument. And one woman who felt particularly aggrieved by it decided to confront her coworker the next day behind their workplace. She walks up to her with angry words. She raises her fist. She hits her in the face, drops her to the ground, stands over her, and hits her again and again and again. The woman's nose was broken. Her head was concussed. And the reason I know it happened that way is because I've seen the video. And the reason there's a video is because there were a group of about five or six people standing around watching, some of them filming. In fact, of the people standing around, only one tried to intervene at all. And it was the victim's three-year-old son who was there with her. And you watch him move his body in front of his mom's unconscious body, and with all the power that he could muster in his three-year-old leg, begin to kick at the attacker and say, leave my mommy alone. Now that is a horrific picture of bystanding. We are right to be angry about that. But if we are honest with ourselves, we spend most of our time as practical bystanders to the evil in the world. We spend most of our time as practical bystanders to the suffering of others. And conversely, we spend most of our time as practical activists for things that God doesn't care much about. I mean, I'll use myself as an example. Uh, I went to Texas AM University for my undergraduate education, so I was fully indoctrinated into the civic religion of Texas college football right and and I love watching the Aggies I love watching them I don't know why but I love it and God's not an Aggie fan because I mean the whole time I've been a fan they've not won a conference championship so I don't think he's for them but more than that I don't know that he's really passionate about college football at all and I wouldn't tell you I'm an activist for college football but if you looked at my calendar every fall you might say no your calendar seems to suggest that you are because you watch it every Saturday Right? Our, our checkbooks and our calendars tell us what we're truly activists for. One of the primary reasons that injustice in our world proliferates is our culture's atmosphere of ambivalence and ability to bystand. Look around and that's just that's what we see. And this may be intuitive to you, but it wasn't to me. It's taken me time to learn that just if justice is not achieved passively. It doesn't just happen. Justice requires active pursuit by people of principle, by people responding to Paul's exhortation in Philippians 2 to actually divest themselves of their own benefit for the sake of others. When we see that kind of sacrificial action happen, we see justice emerge. One of the reasons that my wife and I landed at Wood's Edge to make this our community when we moved to Houston was all the great orphan care that's happening here. We were so encouraged by the many families who are adopting or are serving as foster families. Um, did you know that in the United States, from California to New York, multiple state reports and surveys have suggested that of the children in the United States who are identified as positively identified as being trafficking victims, between Anywhere between 50 and 90% of them are from the state foster care system. An extraordinarily vulnerable population of children. Here in our state, there are 30,000 children in the foster care system. These are children who are prime targets for exploitation. And so people often ask me, Christian, what can I do practically in response to human trafficking? Well, it's hard because it's it's a very complex issue. But I'll tell you one thing that, that you can do. Get involved as a foster family. Or if you can't be a foster family, support a foster family. Come around and be community for people who are doing it. Uh, My wife and I, our first visit to a small group at Woods Edge, we got very vulnerable. And these new friends, we'd never met them, and we said, hey, listen, we're about to start fostering, and we don't feel like we can do it on our own. We don't have enough resources, don't have family in the area. So would you consider actually helping and supporting us? And everyone just looked at us like, oh, my gosh, these people are crazy asking this. But one couple said, yes, like, yeah, we're in, we'll do it. And they got certified and and they've been walking alongside us. So encouraged that that's happening at this church. So if that's you, if you're doing that, thank you. Um, If you're considering that, I would just encourage you to say, there are people here who would love to walk alongside you. So one possible response practically to this issue. But if we move from pity to compassion, if we make that change in our life, our response then is going to have to move from, Cautious to costly. Our response to these issues to evil in our world is gonna have to change from cautious to costly. So if your gut becomes wrenched like mine does, when you hear stories of of two-year-old children being exploited, if you say this must stop, we cannot let this continue. If that's you, then I just have I have one single penetrating question that I want to submit to you, and it's one that I ask myself regularly. What cost are you willing to incur to make that happen? What cost are you willing to incur? If you believe that that is true, what price are you willing to pay to actually see that come about? I've been studying studying human trafficking for over 10 years. I've been working directly in the field for several now. And I tell you, we can meaningfully reduce the number of children who are being exploited in our world. In fact, audaciously, I think we can end it. But it's not going to be free. It's not going to be easy. It's not just going to happen. It's going to take a lot more than a handful of goodwill and some well-produced videos to topple a 150 billion dollar global industry. That kind of stalwart does not bow quickly to people's passion alone. But this question, what cost are we willing to incur, it's actually not a novel question. It's not unique. So actually, if you'll look back at our passage in verse 6, Jesus asks this very question, and he answers it here. Christ Jesus, the end of verse 5, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The question's been asked. God the Father who was so committed to the end of evil and sin and slavery in our world, was willing to pay whatever price was necessary, including giving over his own son. And Jesus Christ himself was so committed to the abolition of sin and slavery in our world that he was willing to incur the cost of laying down his very life. It's not a novel question. It's been answered for us. And so we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. God's gracious healing to the world comes through the costly compassion of his people in the world. I know that's true because I see it in Jesus' life. We see it in Philippians too. C.S. Lewis, the great 20th century British author, actually asked a similar question in Mere Christianity, his, his most famous work. He said, Regarding the question of how much we as Christians should give, I'm afraid the only safe answer is to give more than we can afford. If our lifestyle isn't pinched, if there are not things that we would like to do but cannot because our giving prohibits them, then we're simply not giving enough. But this goes beyond just giving money, right? It, I mean, we know that it does. And C.S. Lewis, his generation, that, the greatest generation, as Tom Brokaw called them, the World War II generation. Some of you maybe were involved in that conflict or uh, alive during that time. World War II, America was a pivotal piece of the Allied victory in that war. But remember, there were years that passed where the war was raging before America really entered. I mean, it, it started before 1942. And so we watched as the Nazis marched into Austria, We watched as they crossed the Maginot line and marched down the streets of Paris. We watched as they carpet-bombed London. And listen, we were cautiously involved. The Lend-Lease Act, we were sending guns and boats and money. But it wasn't until Imperial Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. It wasn't until American citizens on American soil were attacked that we went all in. Because at that point, it became personal, right? It wasn't someone else's son and daughter at Jeopardy. It was our sons and daughters. And at that point, we went all in. In. And everyone in the United States agreed to bear whatever cost was necessary to win because losing was not an option. The evil was too great. It was too perilous. It was too disastrous. We cannot lose. We must do whatever we have to do to win. And it took the whole nation. The army didn't win that alone. The navy didn't win that alone, right? Everybody contributed. So the army private in Bastogne contributed. The navy ensign in Okinawa contributed Women working in the assembly lines in Detroit, building planes and tanks, they contributed. Children doing scrap drives in their neighborhoods contributed. And it took the entire country working together to play that pivotal role in the allied victory. So organizations like Love 146 and Redeemed and Freedom Farm, we can, we can send people to the trenches. We can send people to the front lines. And we can play that role. We will not win this fight by ourselves. We're ill-equipped. We're under-resourced. It's just not going to happen. I think what it's going to take to end human trafficking in our lifetime Entire communities of people who are committing to say, we will not allow this to continue, period. And we'll bear whatever cost is necessary. Thank you. I, I do think that's worth clapping for. Um, so, here's, so the question is, what cost are we willing to incur? And here's what I think Paul asked of the church at Philippi. And here's the way I think Jesus answered it. Refuse to be a bystander. Become an activist for the kingdom of God. Now that's going to actually, here's the thing though, that's going to require a complete reorientation of our lives because all of us, right, I mean, we live in the world and so our lives are typically oriented towards self-preservation and increasing comfort and that's, I mean, that's just the, the result of the fall. We live in a tension. But to reorient our lives, it's going to mean to a large degree trading worldly comfort for godly comfort. American World War II, it's not as though everybody sold everything and went to the front or as though everyone sacrificed everything. That's not what I'm suggesting. But everybody adopted a singular vision, victory. And everybody reoriented their lives around that vision. I mean, people carried on, right? I mean, they got married and were given a marriage and they ran businesses and ate dinner together. But everybody adopted a singular vision around that. So if we move from pity to compassion... And if our response goes from cautious to costly, that means that we're going to move from worldly comfort to godly comfort, from the world's comfort to the Spirit's comfort. If you look back in verse 1 again, Paul says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, you know, he asks it as a question rhetorically, but it's really a statement, right? If you've encountered the risen Christ, if you've had participation with the Spirit, you've experienced the comfort of God, Comfort is linked with knowing Jesus and participating in the Spirit. Now what does Paul mean here by comfort? Because we use that word variously in our culture, right? It can mean a lot of different things. If you know my family at all, you know we love food. And I have, a, I have an unhealthy relationship with food. If You can tell if I'm stressed out because I'll be camped out in front of the freezer looking to see if we have bluebell. Like that's, that's my comfort relationship with food. And I've passed this on genetically to my kids a little bit. And my, my middle son, um, when we announced that it's time to come into the kitchen for dinner, he will literally run laps around the living room pumping his fist and saying, hooray, it's time for dinner. He's so excited. And then on those, on those rare occasions where we're not having dessert, and I have to say, hey, buddy, we're not having dessert tonight, he'll scrunch up his nose like this and just kind of scowl at me and go, Daddy, my tummy's so mad at you. <laughs> yes, because you're comforted by food. I get it. It's, it's in your DNA. So that's probably not what Paul means here. That's not the kind of comfort he's talking about. Comfort is not bad. I don't want to disparage comfort. In fact, the gospel itself is fundamentally comfortable, but not in the way that we usually use the word. The Bible extols godly comfort, but it warns us against worldly comfort or about worldly comfort. Worldly comfort is a trap because it numbs us to our need for God and to the suffering of the world. Godly comfort, on the other hand, is a gift because it awakens us to our need for God and to suffering in the world. Worldly comfort disorients us to God and to the reality of our world. That's why in Revelation 3, John writes to one of the seven churches these words. He says, For you say, I am rich, and I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Do you see it? Disoriented. No, no, wait, I've prospered. I'm rich, I need nothing. And he goes, no, you've, you've missed it. You've dizzied yourself. In fact, you are pitiable, poor, blind, wretched, and, and naked. Worldly comfort can disorient us. But godly comfort, on the other hand, it reorients us to truth. It reorients us to God and his presence in our world. That's why in Acts 9, Luke, the gospel writer Luke, and his account of the early church, in, uh, in chapter 9, he says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord, and catch this part, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Godly comfort reorients us. In fact, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the comforter. If you look at John 14 through 16, he uses this word over and over, paraclete. And it translates as advocate or um, counselor or comforter. So we oftentimes get caught up in the sensational things of the Holy Spirit. right? Those are the stories that we tell. Uh, Those are the kinds of encounters we long for. But reality is that one of the most significant and substantial ministries of the Holy Spirit is that of comforter, that of comforter. Jesus actually says, it's better, he said to to then when he was on earth, it's better that I would go and ascend to the Father because when I leave, I'm going to send to you another comforter, my very spirit, to be present with you. So if we're going to experience that kind of godly comfort that reorients us to truth and to God and to suffering the world, what does that mean for us? How do we experience that? Might I suggest today that if you're asking the question, as I often ask myself the question, why am I not experiencing more of the Holy Spirit? I have an expectation that I should be experiencing more. Why am I not? Might it be that we're too comfortable? Listen, our current, our current comfort dictates our capacity to be comforted. Our current degree of comfort dictates our actual capacity to be comforted. So the pursuit and maximization of our own worldly comfort is antithetical to deep communion with the Spirit of God. By relentlessly pursuing our own comfort, we actually usurp the Holy Spirit's role as comforter. And when we do that, we forfeit the profound, life-changing reality of seeing God's provision come to and through us. Th- didn't Jesus say this on the Sermon on the Mount? Remember Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He didn't say, blessed are those who are comfortable, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. I mean, if, you, if you've given birth or if you've been around a labor and delivery room, you know that they don't call the anesthesiologist in in early stages. When labor pains are far apart and not yet severe, there's not a lot the doctor can do. It's in the late stages, right? When curse words are flying and accusations are being hurled, you did this to me, and hands are being broken in the vice grip of, of the laboring mom, that's when they call the anesthesiologist because our current degree of comfort dictates our capacity to be comforted. At that point, very uncomfortable, high capacity to be comforted. Experiencing the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit requires that we are not already anesthetized by our own worldly comfort. God, Jesus didn't die just so that we would be comfortable. He didn't give us comfort just so that we could huddle up and hoard our comfort and be happy together. He comforted us so that we could distribute the comfort of God in the world, glorifying God by it. And we know this because when we look at the heroes of our faith throughout history or even in the world today, people who are doing incredible things and have incredible stories of how God is working, very often those people are deeply uncomfortable in the world and profoundly comforted by the Spirit of God. Very uncomfortable in the world, deeply comforted by the Spirit of God. I have some friends who have lived in Iraq for the last 10 years. They went in about the time that the American troops were going in during the most recent iteration of the Iraq War. And they've stayed. And now ISIS has begun their terrorist campaign and they're experiencing, you know, all that goes along with that. And they sent an email a few months ago. And I just want to read you the words that they sent. It should be on the screen here. It said, In a city near us where violence has increased, so has the number of people who have chosen to follow Jesus. One brother there says he's now discipling 25 new brothers. Catch this part. And as safety dwindles, courage rises. Trading comfort of the world, for the comfort of God, and living out the gospel and pursuing justice. If you're like me, it's hard to imagine what this looks like practically in your life, right? That's all good in theory, and I believe that truth, but how do I do it? Uh, There's a pastor here in Houston who tells a story that's deeply encouraging to me, and I hope it will be to you. He says he likes to eat at the Waffle House, um, because he says that oftentimes people who work there find themselves hurting or in need. Um, And so he's talking to the lady serving him one time. She's across the counter. And the whole time, she's just kind of working her jaw, and she's grimacing, and he can tell she's in pain. And she says, ma'am, you look like you're in pain. Are you okay? And she says, my teeth have been killing me. And he says, well, have you gone to the dentist? She responds, I don't have dental insurance, and I can't afford it, so no, I've not. And out of his pastoral instinct, he says, ma'am, I want you to know I'm a pastor, and I'll be praying for you. And he pays, and he leaves. And he says he walks to his car and he gets to the door and he senses God say to him, you get in that car and you see what I do to you. And he says, well, that didn't seem like a promising outcome for me. So he turns around, he goes back in and he says, ma'am, if I could arrange prepaid dental uh, for you, would you go? And she said, I certainly would. So he says he goes over and grabs uh, the yellow pages. Are you familiar with these? It's like a large paper bound directory of names. I'm not sure. I think it's an older story. So he looks up a dentist, sets it up, passes along the information. He gets a call a week later, and, uh, and the administrator of the office says, sir, your friend came in, and it's worse than she realized. We're actually going to have to pull all of her teeth. It's going to require an oral surgeon. And we can do that, but the doctor needs to know who's going to pay for this. And he says, tell him the light of the world will pay for it. And she's stunned. She says, I'm sorry, what? Tell him the light of the world will pay for it. Jesus said he's the light of the world. I follow Jesus. I'm supposed to show the world what the grace of God looks like, so tell him the light of the world will pay for it. And there's a long pregnant pause, and she's speechless. And then she responds, and she says, Sir, I'm just going to need a credit card number from you. (laughs) So he hands it over. And a few weeks later, he gets another call, and it's the same administrator, and she says, Sir, your friend came in. We got the teeth out. But while the doctor was in there, he found some lesions on the back of her throat. She has cancer. Now, the good news is he thinks he's caught it in time and is going to be able to help her. And also, sir, the doctor wants you to know that he's also the light of the world and he's going to take care of everything. God's gracious healing to the world comes through the costly compassion of his people in the world. Jesus shows us that. Something profound happens when we are willing to move from pity to compassion, to allow ourselves to be doubled over with the gut-wrenching sadness of the evil that sails the world. When we will become vulnerable and go to that place, something profound happens. When we're willing that our response moves from cautious to costly, and we say we will, we will incur whatever cost, we will pay whatever price, because we will not allow this injustice to prevail. Something profound happens. When we're willing to exchange the comfort of the world for the comfort of the Spirit of God, something profound happens and God does things that we could not imagine, things that we would think are impossible. We've seen it throughout history and I believe it can be true with this issue as well. And we know the end. Revelation 21 tells us the end of the story. Human trafficking will be put to an end. It's not if, it's when. Jesus says he will return and when he does, he's going to put to death all mourning and crying, death itself will be done away with forever. The question is simply, do we want to be a part of that now? The kingdom is amongst us. The kingdom is coming. Do we want to be a part of that? Or are we going to punt and, and leave these realities to our kids and grandkids? Friends, we can actually taste the kingdom of God. We can see it more clearly to the degree that we are willing to move into the hard truths. The hard truths of the scriptures and to actually follow Jesus into the hard places. The end of injustice is imminent. It's waiting for us. The kingdom is at hand. So listen, I, I would love to say, hey, come follow me, but frankly, I'm not good at it. I mean, I, 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 I hate preaching this because I have to, for like, a, for weeks I have to carry this around, and it's hard. It's convicting. I live in this tension, and so here's, here's the invitation that I simply want to give. Jesus has done the monumental, He's inviting us to join him in the incremental. Jesus has done everything that it's taken. He's done the monumental. We simply move into the incremental and join with him. So the invitation is let's link arms together. Let's run towards this end. Let's not wait and simply anesthetize ourselves in comfort. Let's give ourselves to see the kingdom of God come, to see evil put down, to ensure that children are not trafficked in our world. God has promised us that. Let's go take hold of it together. Would you pray with me for that? God, first we confess to you that we often bystand the suffering of others and we often bystand the pain and evil in our world. God, for those of us who have experienced the grace of God in Jesus, that he did not count equality with God the thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and humbled himself and took on flesh to suffer and die in our place. God, we recognize the great joy that is available to us. So God, we ask that you would empower us by your spirit, that you would give us courage, that you would move us to become activists for the kingdom of God. Father, we need you. Spirit, fill us. Give us great joy. Give us a better vision for our world than we possess on our own. Help us today, we pray in Jesus' name.